0: Welcome to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran.
1: i I'm Bramwell.
0: I'm Jacob. And you join us for a very special episode on the Chris Chibnall era, or the Jodie Whittaker era if you prefer. Which is interesting in itself, I think, because I've I've been trying to figure this out over the last few days, but as far as I can gather, this is more or less the only time that... A doctor and a showrunner have perfectly overlapped like that, because mm-hmm. um, even Barry Letts and Terence Dicks were like an episode off, uh, overlapping perfectly with John Pertwee. You could probably make an argument for Andrew Cartmell. I think he's probably the closest, but obviously in the, um, for one thing, he was he was the script editor rather than the uh, overall producer. And then, obviously, in the modern era, when those uh, titles are more closely linked, Russell T. Davies had both Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant. Stephen Moffat had both Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi. So, while I think we will probably be referring to it as the Chibnall era as we go, it is worth bearing in mind that, you know, this is a whole kind of creative team, more or less, that we're talking about. And... With that in mind, I think it's worth saying that there's been a tendency that I've noticed in fandom, especially recently, although I think it was there before as well, to sort of identify eras with specific personalities and to kind of to talk about those people as, you know, as people rather than as sort of authorial personas. And so I think it's worth saying that, like, whatever we say in this episode is not a criticism of Chris Chibnall as a person, as a human being. I don't, with the best will in the world, don't really care about him as a human being. Whatever we criticize is to do with his writing, his show running, whatever. It's weird that I have to make this point, but I feel like I do, because the kind of ad hominem nature of a lot of fandom... Unfortunately necessitates it. And on a related note. To get out of the way before we actually get into the meat of this. As has probably been clear from what I've just been saying. We, I think it's fair to say, come to bury the Chibnall era and not to praise it. We're not really fans of this era to put it probably quite mildly. Which is not to say we won't have positive things to say about it. Because we definitely will. But if... You are one of those people for whom, who really likes this era, to whom it really speaks, who really kind of enjoys the overall aesthetic and the overall vibe of this era. And if you, you it may be that you're kind of willing to engage with probably quite robust criticism of it, in which case, fair enough. If you don't, if you don't want to hear your your favourite era criticised, maybe your favourite Doctor criticised for... A couple of hours. Honestly, that's kind of fair enough. I understand that impulse. Like, feel free to leave now with no ill will. Please do check out some of our other episodes. Um, but, like, I, I really would not begrudge you that. On the other hand, if you are someone who is really not a fan of this era, chances are there will absolutely be things in here for you uh, that you may agree with. And probably things that you may not agree with as well. And I hope that you will enjoy. But. And this is a point again. That I really wish I didn't have to make. But unfortunately I really do. If it is the case that. You are not a fan of this era. You're not a fan of. Particularly of Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. Specifically because. Of the existence of a female Doctor. Because of. Some of the casting choices in this era. uh, Because you think it is. Too woke. In fact, I would broaden that out if you are the kind of person who uses the word woke in a pejorative sense. I would probably say this is not for you. And in fact, I would go slightly further than that. I don't really want you listening to this because I probably don't want to be associated with you, even indirectly. If you sincerely hold those kinds of opinions, please go. With that out of the way, let's actually get into the meat of the thing, and I thought it would probably be best to start, especially given all that I've just said, by actually outlining what we think are some of the good features, some of the positive features, some of the things that we like about this era. So, I don't know, Branwell, do you want to start?
1: I can do, yeah. Um, I have to admit, it's a bit thin on the ground. (laughs) But I like the theme music and the theme visuals for this Mm -hmm. era. Um, I think that there are some individually good actors and good performances. I do, in principle, like the the fact that the writing team is considerably more diverse than some previous. I think than than both the Moffat or the Davies era, I think we get a more diverse writing team. And I think some of the writers that we've seen um, i have got Vinay Patel and Maxine Alderton as particular standouts that I think are really quite good. So I, I think that that is good, although it's difficult because what I find hard to talk about with the Chibnall era in particular is I think that it, it's hard to talk about because it gets a lot of credit for things that we can all sort of admit are good, regardless of how they're actually like executed and whether they are effective so I didn't want to just say like it, I th- do think it is inherently good to have a more diverse writing team but I don't know how to explain this but I think we're probably going to come back to the um to the fact of it getting some sort of easy plaudits but I think that's one way you can fairly sort of uncomplicatedly just say that is a good thing that was done and it's good to Give those writers some work, but also I do think it can only enrich the show to have a diversity of perspectives. Mm. And I really do hope that's something that's taken forward into the Russell T Davies era or R2D2, as I am calling it, or this, the Renaissance, as I'm also <laughs> calling it. There's been very little traction for these names, but um, I think I'm really on to something.
0: I think I've seen R2D2 around a bit. Mm. Oh,
1: good. He's a little guy. Yeah. Bleep bloop.
0: Indeed yeah I mean that definitely i I agree with everything you've just said, and I think the um the concept of of diversity and of i guess you could say representation going along with that is something that I think while I agree with you that there are there are definitely things to say about it and there's a big asterisk next to it. I do think it is something that this era definitely deserves credit for. I mean, starting with the idea of having a female Doctor, which is really uncomplicatedly a good thing, no matter what you think about the, the execution, which I suspect is something else we will come back to.
1: Yes, yeah, sorry, I probably should have said that, obviously. I no, think, yeah. You know,
0: yeah, I think that almost goes without saying.
1: Well, I think I, I thought that it did, but then I realised <laughs> as soon as you said it, that, especially given the intro, that it doesn't always. But anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll get you get back to what you were saying.
0: And I think... Um, what that speaks to is there is there is a clear sort of commitment there in terms of the, the hiring, in terms of the casting, uh, which is something, again, I kind of alluded to in the intro, to a diversity, at least when it comes to sort of ethnicity, and to, to maybe a slightly lesser extent in terms of gender as well, which, again, I think is just uncomplicatedly a good thing. And it, the fact as well that it is replicated behind the camera in particular i think is something that the year absolutely deserves credit for in terms of the not only writers but also directors we had i think oh i i don't have stats off the top of my head but certainly we have far more female directors working on this year i think maybe the first female director of color during in series 12 and that is definitely that is something that I think we would be remiss if we didn't applaud on some level because it is the, the show could absolutely have gotten away with not doing this kind of thing. And it's, it's also, I think it's just, it's very healthy for the show uh, in terms of bringing in the kind of, the kinds of talent that you mention, which is something else that I think is worth, worth pointing out in this era. Vinay Patel is also on my list of kind of, well, good things about the era. In fact, Maxine Alderton as well, I think he's a good shout. Zegni Akinola, you mentioned mm-hmm. the theme tune. And mm-hmm. sadly, he's not staying on. I kind of hoped he would. And yeah, again, like, while I have mixed feelings about the, the idea of kind of bringing on a whole new stable of writers for Series 11 and beyond, I think at the very least it has done a lot of good in terms of bringing sort of new blood into into Doctor Who, new kind of fresh talent which is something that i think really always usually at least um benefits the show.
2: Um Jacob, what about you? Well, yeah, as you said, it's kind of thin on the ground, but i i completely agree with the theme tune. I love the theme tune. Like it's i think it's my favorite theme tune and title sequence of the modern era. Like it's I don't know it's kind of like a it's almost like a revamp of the of the original theme song which I really like. Yeah. yeah. Um you know it it's it's kind of yeah, a mix of sort of the modern and the original and it's really good. And kind of the incidental music as well like we were saying the change of composer. I always had kind of this this uh, I mean we've talked about this before I always had this problem with Murray Gold being too kind of uh, loud and kind of uh, very obvious and I I think mm, yeah. um Segan Akinola's incidental music is much more subtle. And again, that's something that I think is great. There's also been a sort of attempt to take a more kind of global approach in terms of location, particularly mm-hmm. with kind of historical stories and stuff, which I think is a good thing. You know, so like we we obviously had the the kind of uh, demons of the punjab looking at kind of the partition of India and things like that. I don't necessarily think it's always been executed, as well as it could have been, but I think it is at least nice that there's some attempt to try and be a bit less Eurocentric. And I I think broadly, like, there are it's very frustrating because there are some impulses and instincts in this era that I think are good but they've not been executed well. So I think we'll get onto this in more detail, but like the whole Timeless Child plotline, I really don't like at all. I don't like the the way in which it's done um, and kind of the content of a lot of it. But I do kind of sympathise with the idea of trying to, you know, kind of mystify the Doctor's origins somewhat. Uh, you know, I think there is some... I mean, I love the McCoy era, right, so that's kind of... I don't really... And I'm not really continuity obsessed. I mean, the very strange thing about this era is it's kind of both trying to rip up continuity but at the same time is also, as we'll talk about when we get to the bad stuff, is kind of continuity obsessed, I think. And I also think the decision in the first season to kind of move away from returning villains was something that I really thought was a good move. I mean, unfortunately, they then went massively back on that. I mean... They've gone the total opposite direction since, and I mean the the point about diversity, like I do think it's a good thing. Uh, like I'm glad there's a female doctor, but like if there's one thing that I would say, I'm kind of thinking of like someone like Emma de Berry's critique of the idea of like diversity and inclusion. I think the mm. problem very often, inc- and this including with Doctor Who, is that often forms of diversity and inclusion tend to be kind of these these buzzwords and there's kind of a very superficial form of representation. And I think that's what we get in this era. It doesn't go far enough. And I think it's tied up with a... Unfortunately, it's been tied up with a very kind of problematic centrist politics that effectively means that kind of the calls for diversity aren't really addressing kind of key issues that are that are causing you know racial and gender inequality et etc, so we'll get into I'll get into that more with the bad because I don't want to you know sort of take up the good section with loads of criticisms, but that's kind of broadly my kind of take so there's some good stuff in here, but frustratingly, I think a lot of it is either undermined or doesn't go far enough um but yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's um. I agree with that. I I think that's and I think that's um a very good kind of um counter to the uh the what Branwell was talking about really in terms of the the plaudits that this era gets some of which I think just somewhat deserve but the extent to which it gets applauded as this kind of beacon of um of representation and how shallow that can be I mean I would echo what you were saying and also just generally encourage people to read Emma Dabry's What Why People Can Do Next because yeah. it's really good. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention actually before we get off this um, before we get off the positive this is going to sound like damning with faint praise but one thing that this era has produced that I really really like is some of the kind of ephemera of it and some of the stuff that is kind of apart from the show itself so especially during the first lockdown in the kind of first time, well, really throughout 2020, uh, there was some really great stuff being produced. There was that little video that Jodie Whittaker recorded in her house, which some people have suggested is actually her best moment as the Doctor, which I think is really only slightly facetious. There's, there were various kinds of short stories produced by a combination of people who were writing for the show at the time. Uh, and people like people like Paul Cornell and Stephen Moffat and Russell T Davies, in fact, who kind of had written for it before, some of which kind of allowed those old writers actually to take on the 13th Doctor uh, in some interesting ways and kind of to do some fun things with her. Uh, there was all the stuff around the um, the watch alongs organized principally by Emily Cook, where we had like people kind of reprising roles for short little fun video cameos and things like that which i would absolutely include as part of this era because i think in spirit at least it does it does fit in and and some of that kind of stuff was organized um by chris Chibnall as well so i think you know credit where credit's due that was a really interesting kind of part of the show's history and one that i kind of have uncomplicatedly fond feelings for because it was a really, ni- it built a really nice sort of sense of community uh, at a time when that was very much needed. And uh, oh, worth shouting out to the quiz of Raslon as well, <laughs> who um, did some uh, some really cool Zoom quizzes during that time, and we came third in one of their quizzes. <laughs>
1: We didn't. We haven't played it since. So I would yeah. say reigning
2: third place. I, th- I think. I yeah, think we would absolutely. have. We would have improved even further if we. If oh we, yeah, uh, yeah. We yeah.
0: we had we had to retire gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, like I know it. It do, it does feel like kind of um, as I say, like damning with faint praise to say the ephemera of this era was really good, and maybe it is to some extent. But I I do feel I I do feel. It would be remiss not to talk about that kind of thing because I think it has been an important part of the experience of the show over the last couple of years really.
1: I will also say it warms my heart when I see like little girls mm. dressed as the doctor or mm, getting mm. excited about the doctor being a woman so um I'm glad that I'm glad for them and I'm glad that they enjoyed it. And it's very sweet and heartwarming.
0: Yes. I mean we might talk a little bit more about that actually when we get on to talking about the thirteenth Doctor herself. Ooh. But yeah, absolutely. Any any other sort of positives we want to touch on before before we move on?
2: I think I've pretty much pretty much said all of mine. <laughs> oh
0: no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, in that case, now that we've gotten the positivity out of the way Let's move on to what we think are the core problems of the era then. Because clearly, we think there are problems. So, hmm. I guess, Jacob, do you want to start us off? <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like this is the, the job you were born for. Right.
2: Well, um, I'm just going to warn everyone now. This could take a while. Okay. Um, basically, I, I, okay. So I have... Obviously, I have a kind of political issues with this era and the kind of ideological stance and ideological work that it does. But I, I, I will leave that to one side for the minute. I'm just, I'm going to start with the kind of uh, more of the sort of artistic problems, if you like. So, I mean, the main thing is, I think a lot of it is very poorly written. You know, like most episodes, kind of structurally, tend to be quite messy. I find that there's key information often isn't foregrounded or there's a massive info dump somewhere in the episode. I mean, the the Timeless Child is kind of the obvious one hmm. where this entire change in the plot is just, you know, sort of there's this, I can't remember how long it is, there's this whole section where the story is just told to the viewer and the power of the Doctor as well is another one where structurally it was just kind of, all over the place, like characters just appeared out of nowhere. I mean, like Ace is down in the volcano and then Graham suddenly appears. You know, thing with with very little kind of explanation. Weird things like that. and And Dan disappears at the start, which I thought was very weird as well. I don't know why you wouldn't have just let him leave at the end of the previous season. But, you know... I think, I mean, I'll go more into this later when we get to kind of talking about the Companions and the Doctor, but I think a lot of the characters aren't very uh, sort of rounded or well-written or complex. Mm. In terms of the kind of political issues with this era, essentially what it's putting forward, and and I'm sorry, Kieran, I'm kind of stealing from your article here, but (laughs) I agree with it, um, is, is a kind of... It's, a, it's essentially like a centrist liberalism is what it's putting forward. So, I mean, like, the kind of touchstones for thinking about that is something like Kablam. You know, it's kind of space Amazon. Uh, and it's kind of revealed to be this exploitative company. And the conclusion is, of the story isn't that there's a problem with the system as a whole, it's that, as the doctor puts it, it's not the systems that are the problem. And she talks about the people kind of taking advantage of it. Or Tesla's Night of Terror, you know, which is kind of... There's that suggestion in there that Tesla wasn't successful uh, because he didn't kind of think in a business-like way, he didn't think as a businessman. And in that episode, there's this kind of weird use of the alien as a sort of merit metaphor for a kind of parasitic capitalism... You know, um, they, they, they want to steal Tesla so he can make things for them. And the, the whole point with the... I forget the name of the alien race now, but the whole point is that they sort of go through the universe stealing other people's technologies, using their ideas. And there's a parallel, I think, between that and Edison in the episode. But the problem is that by placing or framing it as an alien threat, and specifically using the line that wasn't Edison, it kind of externalizes that kind of parasitism, parasitism from capitalism. It suggests it's kind of an anomaly or an aberration, rather than something that's in some way inherent to a capitalist society. And so, I mean, really what I mean by, I say centrist liberalism, what I mean by the liberalism part of it is not the kind of pejorative way in which liberal is often used particularly in an American context for people who are maybe on the left generally what I mean is kind of the you know the way in which you think of liberalism as a political philosophy right so they're kind of focused on an idea of individual freedom um, but it also Mm -hmm. tends to be about protecting private property rights having a free market and that's kind of what I take issue with and I think you can kind of you can kind of see that in the era and the way in which it marries together, sort of this focus on diversity, but it's also uh, very much about kind of maintaining the status quo, if you like, with those, you know, with those kind of examples that I mentioned, like uh, Tesla and uh, Kablam, but also something like Orphan Fifty Five, you know, where there's mm-hmm. the whole final speech about climate change. And again, rather than it being kind of presented as this systemic issue, it's framed as, I think the doctors are something along the lines of people can choose whether to wreck planets or save them. Uh, and there's this emphasis on choice and individual action rather than recognising that actually it's it's a systemic issue. It's an issue to do with, you know, kind of top companies, big oil. Uh, it's something that individuals can can't do a lot about and that doesn't mean people shouldn't, you know, recycle or whatever if they want to but um, it is worth recognising that the individual can only do so much and again I think the way in which those political messages are incorporated into the era is is put through very poor writing again, so I don't have a problem with Doctor Who being political, I know that some people do for some bizarre reason well mm-hmm here's a newsflash, it's always been political. You know, like the Davies era is very political. We've talked about the Letts mm. and, and Terence Dicks era, and I might not agree with the politics of that, but it again, it's a, it is a political era. It talks about kind of the environment extensively and energy. Mm. So, you know, and, and we've talked about the Moffat era, and I've done political readings of the Moffat era, so it's always, it's always there. But I think what the problem is with this era is that there's no subtlety or skill largely to how the political messages are incorporated into into the text so it's like Orphan 55 ends with this speech about climate change which we don't need because you have shown the effects of climate change in the episode it doesn't need to be so on the nose or something like you know something like Rosa where you have these kind of history lessons Embedded throughout the story, and and that's fine. Like, there's no, there's no, again, there's no problem with with the history, but you need to show it rather than tell it. So, like when they first land, and Ryan is kind of immediately attacked by someone, that's a good way of kind of conveying this stuff. Mm-hmm. But having Graham being like, you know, oh, I remember this because I learned this in school, or because I'm a bus driver, and I remember. It, that And then kind of giving this historical explanation that doesn't really work and i I don't think it works on a level of even effectively trying to get those messages across you know I think what the the strength of kind of uh you know a piece of artwork or a, or a, a you know a, like a literary text or whatever is that you can have a kind of emotional connection, and I think it's kind of almost sapping that out of um, you know, and they've gone to some really interesting places. I think in this era, um, you know, obviously Rosa being one. Like, uh, but I, I don't feel like they've really done a very good job uh, of kind of executing um, that stuff. And I also think it's worth saying, I, I hear a lot people when they debate this era, they tend to go on either one of two sides, and both frustrate me. So you either get people who I completely disagree with, who say, as you as you were saying at the start, Doctor Who is too woke um, now because it's because it's got political messaging in it. That's rubbish. Like I said, it's always been political. But then you get the other side, which often tends to to try and respond to that. They will they will acknowledge that Doctor Who's always been political. But then they will tend to suggest, they will overstate the kind of radicalism of the show historically. So they will kind of say, oh yeah, but the Doctor's always been a pacifist and this and that. And yeah, it's true. There have been eras in which the show has put forward radical messaging, like to some extent. I mean, the McCoy era does it. But I think it's also worth pointing out that the the Chibnall era, this kind of like liberalism in the Chibnall era isn't exceptional or different. I think it is embedded in the show to some extent and I would like to see the show getting away from it because I think it's problematic. So, you know, just I I've talked about this before but just the very idea of a British man and usually usually specifically English as well is the other thing going around the universe in a police box, you know, as the kind of the symbol of authority. It has something inherently imperialistic about it, and the way in which you know the, the kind of the kind of tropes and images of a stereotypical England tend to be used both around the doctor and you know in places they visit, even if it's you know the far-flung areas of the universe again, there is something very imperialistic about that, and I think it's symptomatic of the era in which it was made and and produced mm-hmm. you know and kind of the era of decolonization. And obviously there have been eras, as we've said, like kind of, you know, the the gothic horror era where there's even a turn to a sort of conservatism and even some very blatant forms of racism. Mm-hmm. So I think, the, I think the kind of... The other side who overstate the radicalism potentially erase the kind of... The very problematic history that the show has. And I would be much more interested in seeing the programme tackle that stuff head on. But, yeah, like... Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs>
0: I mean, there's a lot to cover. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I, I obviously agree, uh, especially since you were citing an article that I wrote in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, although yes. although also explaining it far better than I did in that article. No, I, I, d- I don't think that's true. <laughs>
1: As an adjudicator, I would like to say that you both explained it extremely well.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um... A couple of points I wanted to touch on. I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the that debate does frustrate me as well. The kind of the the idea that like the show has always somehow been on kind of the side of right throughout its history, which is demonstrably untrue. Yeah. Although, actually, as a as a sort of adjunct to what you were saying a few days ago, I did see on Twitter, I. I cannot remember who found this, unfortunately, but it was a very good find. And mm. um, someone found an article from the, I think it was the Telegraph mm. in uh, 1973 from their TV section in which they talked about how much they were enjoying the current series of Doctor Who, but that they felt that it was getting a bit too political. And they were clearly <laughs> talking specifically about the Green Death Yeah, uh, in doing so. Perhaps not that surprisingly. And mm. um, so it, ah. <laughs> it is one of those things where um, you see the same sorts of conversations recurring, which, which, again, should not be mistaken for the show being somehow the same mm. across time. Mm. But it, is, it, it was a kind of one of those strange sorts of echoes across time. I should also say, incidentally, some of what you were saying about the kind of stopping to explain things, especially in regard to the kind of history lesson approach. We did talk about this a little bit in our last episode, the one on historicals. Yeah. And um, so it might be worth kind of, uh, if you're interested, having a listen to that as well. So we did talk, we talked quite a bit about Rosa, particularly in that one, actually. And also a couple of other episodes. Uh, we talked a bit about Haunting of Villa Diodati, but I'm sure we will talk about that again in the course of this. So I won't. Relitigate that for the moment. So I'll turn it over to you, Branwell.
1: Okay, um, sure. I mean, I don't necessarily have. I mean, obviously, I would echo the sentiments that have already been expressed. I think you're probably both better at explaining the sort of, polit- the specific political leanings in this era than I am. I do have some criticisms of the writing. One of them is that there's a sort of dearth of episodes that are about things other than just, this is an episode of Doctor Who. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of episodes that don't really have a theme, mm. and then when they do, there's a tendency to sort of fumble the message, which I think... Mm. um Is it Andrew Ellard that's been particularly pointing this out in... Yeah tweet notes that I think there's quite a few episodes which set up a kind of, like, I mean, Kablam is an example, but um, that's kind of a bit unclear if it's, like, fumbling the message or not. Mm. I won't be able to think of all the examples off the top of my head, unfortunately, but there are quite a few where it seems to want to be about something, and then messes up.
0: I think Orphan 55 is actually a pretty good example as well, for Mm. much of the reasons outlined by Jacob, that the the ending kind of, not to the extent that Kerbalan does, but the ending does um kind of undermine it somewhat aesthetically as well as in terms of its message. Mm-hmm.
1: I also think Can You Hear Me really fails to stick the landing. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a very
0: good example. actually. In
1: terms of like changing something that is quite subtle into something that is <laughs> painfully obvious, but also more confusing for how obvious that it is. So I think that there's that. There's also just whole areas of the sh- sh- this era that are about, like, kind of, fuck all. Like, what was the whole Flux arc
3: mm.
1: about, really? Like, I was kind of looking back over, um, I have to confess, I did not actually re-watch any episodes specifically for this, because I thought it would be better to give my impressions just as the era was ending. Mm. But I did obviously look back at what what had transpired. And um, I realised that I don't really have very much to say about Flux, but that's just because I don't really know what the point of it was Mm. on a very, like, fundamental level. Like, I know what the point of the Timeless Children thing was, even though I have very, like, mixed feelings about it. But I don't know. It just seemed to be about being here is some Doctor Who. Mm. But yeah, so... um, Oh, I suppose it had the Doctor and tekete
0: Kind of, but like even that was a a strange sort of like element of it that sort of only really cropped up about halfway through and then seemed to be kind of... It's not quite that it didn't lead anywhere, but it's very hard to say that that was the focus of what was going on.
1: Mm. Mm. Relatedly to that, I've got substituting shakeups in lore for emotional stakes, Mm. where what is happening is deemed to be important because of its changes to the sort of lore of the show rather than or kind of ahead of what that means for the characters um I don't really think that the doctor having been in the division or division or whatever it's called is actually I don't really see how that changes how the doctor acts and it doesn't really change how the doctor acts like I can see how the timeless children thing might But that revelation I don't think really changes anything other than it adds like a sort of angsty backstory that we might otherwise have surmised just from, you know, Time Lords not being that nice. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) This is also going to be a bit difficult to explain without me sounding weird, but also nobody has like a real sort of sexuality. Mm. Like the show feels very sort of, sexless in a way that the Moff and the Davies era weren't and I get that it's a family show and so there's not gonna be like non-stop sucking and fucking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and nor would anybody want that.
0: Oh I'm I'm so excited to t- to tick the explicit tag on this episode now. Can we, can, we can we put that can we put that in him? a promotional
2: quote so people it's like clickbait.
0: <laughs> I can I can maybe like isolate that audio and use it as a little trailer for this episode.
1: Oh no. Anyway but what I mean is like you've got young companions, um, in Yaz and Ryan and also just attractive other people that they meet on their travels. But there's you don't really get much in the way of like a spark. I mm-hmm. think that in Orphan fifty five Ryan maybe sort of has a girlfriend, um, or he like has a thing with a girl, but you never really um None of the romantic relationships seem to be about a kind of instantaneous spark which isn't necessarily, mm. it's difficult because I don't want to necessarily mean it's a problem, but it does give the whole era as a, as a whole I would say more kind of tonal consistency with either the Sarah Jane adventures or, or the classic era of Doctor mm. Who. Mm. And with the Sarah Jane adventures, that's a good show, but it is you know, aimed at a at an audience of sort of children and teenagers and I don't it just makes it all feel a bit weirdly unreal to me when these are like Hmm. 19 to what 22 year olds over the course of the series and i've got a whole thing about phasmin but i will Hmm. i'll save that we'll get
0: there but it's
1: just something that's a bit strange to me especially in contrast with the other eras and it's really hard to, to talk about without sounding like a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there's something there. Mm, mm. No, yeah, yeah. Um, Also, the other things I've got is there's too many companions. I think yeah. there's just we'll get. I mean, we're going to do companions in a minute, yeah. but I just think that there's always too many. I think that getting it down to one would probably be the best thing that they could have done, and, and we never got less than two. And also, the humour is just not very funny. Not across the board, like because you've got a lot of different writers, but um, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that is framed as if it's a joke, and I'm just not enjoying it. I'm not having a good time. Like Mm. the what was the one you were quoting at me before we started recording? Oh, the uh, the we'll have to have a conversation.
0: Yeah. Oh my Goes down in resolution, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, has been haunting me, Mm. uh, much like Villa Diodati for the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, except that Villa Diodati had a solid, like, first half.
0: Mm. Mm.
3: That's yeah.
1: True. Oh, that's another thing I was going to mention. Sorry, I hope this is not too many no. things. Um,
0: well, in some ways, perhaps, but, like, that's not your fault.
1: But I think that um, there's a lack of, sort of, moral complexity, mm. which I think it actually ends up being quite, sort of, na- leads to a kind of nastiness, mm. um, which I think I might get more onto in some more things, but it was just Villa Diodati that made me think of it because um, it, there's a lot of like absolute cute absolutes rather than mm. anything that's sort of nitty gritty about how we deal with moral situations which leads to like oh we can't kill Percy Shelley because killing slash killing a poet specifically is bad or the just not killing thing in general which I think leads to some really weird situations where you get people mm. like condemned to spend eternity conscious in like a In a sort of stasis chamber or something. Mm -hmm. Which I would argue is much, much worse than being killed. Mm -hmm. But it's very sort of... Things being proclaimed to be bad. And other things being proclaimed to be good. But without the logic of why that is. That underpins it. And it's the sorting out fair play throughout the universe thing which my i think Kieran is looking at me significantly but um the sort of idea that there is an unher- inherent uncomplicated good and an inherent uncomplicated evil mm. which i just find not particularly interesting but also i think is used to excuse some actions by the doctors and others which i think are dubious
0: mm. Mm yeah i mean as 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 my my saucy looks just indicated <laughs> um i i will have quite a bit more to say about that and specifically about the sorting and uh, fair play throughout the universe thing um in a few minutes when we come on to the 13th doctor specifically but yeah i i i agree with all of that i mean the, i think the what you say about the lack of sexuality is just is really is something that is really interesting to me i it's something we've talked about quite a bit. I th- I think it was actually Andrew Ellard again, sort of brought that up at some point during Series Twelve, and I kind of haven't been able to unsee it ever since.
1: I think he might have brought it up in. He certainly brought it up in the context of Ryan specifically yes. later, but I think it is across the board hmm. a thing. Well, I think
2: um, it's it's interesting because it indicates uh, a kind of. I think we've said this before, but there is a kind of there is a real conservatism to. Hmm uh Chibnall's supposed radical reinvention right you know like cuz that is like you were saying that kind of aversion to sexuality in the in the show is a uh, a trope of the classic era i i don't necessarily have a problem with that aversion in relation to the doctor because mm-hmm. I, i'm not a fan yeah. of doctor companion relationships but i do think that like yeah you're right in terms of realistic characters other characters it, it doesn't make much sense yeah, and that conservatism comes through, I guess, in the kind of the historical stuff as well. You know, the kind of teaching a lesson. It kind of goes back to the mm. the sort of that the remit the show was given originally. That they, they you know they do science episodes and then history because it had to be educational. So mm. yeah, but anyway, sorry, that's an aside. But no,
1: I think it's part of a similar kind of issue because I think I was I said I was saying something like this earlier, which is. Um, uh, I've got another disclaimer, which I'll just quickly give, is that obviously not everybody wants to have sex or to have romantic mm. relationships. Mm. And I think that like there's obviously space for those kinds of characters in media. Mm. It's just that I don't even think that it's as thought out as this character no. is asexual or aromantic. No, really I just think it's not. It's, it's like an absence rather than a sort of thought out yeah. character choice. But what I was going to say is, I think I was saying earlier that the thing is that, like, obviously Doctor Who is a family show, as um, we've saying, which is why there should not be, not be, like, Torchwood levels of whatever, <laughs> of anything, really. <laughs> um, but adults are part of families, and I think that it's not unreasonable to expect that there might be stuff about, kind of, relationship issues that are pertinent to grown-ups' lives, mm. basically.
0: I mean, I think it really stands out um, in relation to both the Davies and Moffat eras, which were, in different ways, but also pretty consistently just soaked in sexuality. Which is a, a choice of phrase that I do not regret in any way. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, I mean, from the the like alleged queer agenda... Or well, actually, I think it was specifically the gay agenda of um of Davies and um, through to you know everyone being horny all the time in a lot of Moffat's writing. Like in both those cases, I think there is a clear sense of like just kind of trying to replicate aspects of human life on screen, hmm. which is r- just really conspicuously absent in um a lot of the Chibnall era. Which, as you've just kind of reminded me, is is particularly weird from the former head writer of Torchwood.
1: Oh yeah, I always forget about that.
0: Yeah, I know, it seems strange, doesn't it?
1: What if we'd had sexy cyberwomen instead of cybermasters? Hmm.
0: What then? <laughs> what, what then, St. Plato's Ghost? What then?
1: I was going to say something in relation to what you said, but I forgot what it was So I got distracted by sexy cyberwomen, as, <laughs> <is so often, laughs> as is so often often, way. That's just my daily life, honestly. <laughs> um, um, nope, it's gone. Okay, Sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, another aspect of what you were saying, which I think is reflected in a number of things that we've said, actually. Jacob, you were saying something like this, even back when we were talking about the positives. Mm. We've talked a bit about the kind of innate storytelling and aesthetic conservatism of of this era. Mm. And something that really stands out to me, especially in the wake of Power of the Doctor, is the remarkably self-referential nature of... Quite a lot of this era. Yeah, I mean Branwell as well. You were talking about a lot of episodes seem to have a few ambitions beyond just being Doctor Who, being about Doctor Who. Mm. Um, and again, I'm thinking of Power of the Doctor. But when you think of the kind of this era has often had a relationship with the show, with canon, if you like, that I can only describe as onanistic mm. to the point that, Ooh. like,
1: <laughs> the real reason why there wasn't any sexuality. <laughs>
0: I would say that's the opposite, but anyway. um, The um wow, this is this really is our X-rated episode for some reason. (laughs) Um, The I mean the the timeless child is a good example for all that you know that could have had a lot of potential in terms of the kind of the future of the show. There's also I can I I I can't quite escape the the conclusion that quite a lot of the reason that whole storyline that twist if you like exists is to explain the morbius doctors yeah like, and it I, I i'm not suggesting that's the whole reason it exists because i really don't think that's the case but it's strange how how it seems to be almost kind of framed against that mm. in an odd sort of way and we've had kind of retreads of old old plot lines and old concerns of the show without really moving beyond them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the example that's been really annoying me um, in kind of the, the final episodes of the era is the kind of sort of nudging towards the idea that the Doctor's relationships with companions uh, of any kind, by the way, not just romantic relationships, could be kind of inherently exploitative and inherently toxic. Which is not a bad idea in itself, it's just kind of a shame that it goes quite a bit less far than Clara's entire plotline did only a few years ago, which was all about that idea and the kind of attempt to find a way for the Doctor beyond that. But all that the whole kind of plot plotline, and indeed to an extent the Thasmin thing, which again we will talk about more later uh do is kind of tiptoe up to that idea, kind of gesture towards it, and then just leave it. Mm. It's really strange and it's it's a really kind of it's it's irritating, to be honest, because I just kind of want more from the show. Yeah. We talked a bit about historicals um as well. Again, this is something we touched on in the historicals episode, so I won't dwell too much on it. But a kind of recurring concern of mine. For a lot of the Chibnall era. Has been the way in which it tends to approach historicals. As being kind of engaging with the the trappings of history. As opposed to anything sort of more material. And mm. uh, there are exceptions to that. Demons of the Punjab I think is more or less across the board an exception to that. But-
1: I think first half of one Villa Diodati is also quite good for that.
0: Ish, yes, I think so. Uh I mean that has the the complication that it's still based around celebrities, but I don't hey. think I don't think it's one or the other. Mm. Uh, and I yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think there's I although it's it's still it's it's history is still slightly dodgy, but anyway, you know, it's it's very much the kind of the celebrity model of let's go and meet this person. And yet those people for a start are quite often decentered in what seem to be their own stories. I mean Spyfall Part Two is a good example where it kind of speeds through Ada Lovelace and Norainia Khan, mm-hmm. and even like leaving aside the horrible, horrible way that it leaves both of them, and particularly Nora N- inaya Khan, it, there, there's a sense that they're just kind of there as like a fun bit of history that we can gesture towards, mm-hmm. and there's just it just seems very um, superficial to me. Yeah.
1: There's also the um, tendency of sort of sidelining real, exciting women in history mm. for fictional men.
2: Because mm. we saw that mm.
1: in... Um, oh, yes! Is it Legend, Legend of the Sea Devils. Devils? Where... Oh, I'm blanking on her name. Madam Ching. Like, yeah. Where we have Madame Ching who's like actually a real person and potentially really cool to look at her history. But then there's like a a male pirate that we get introduced to, who I don't think is actually so he's completely fictional. And then it all becomes quite focused on him. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing kind of happens with Mary Seacole in um...
0: uh, War of the Sons of... Yeah, yeah.
1: Where it becomes sort of about. I'm not sure if this is a real historical person. To be fair, but it becomes about like General with Mustache, rather than being mostly about her and her work. Which is
2: a bit weird. Mm. Yeah. I, no. I, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Jacob. Well, I was just going to say, I think the problem is as well. A lot of times, I find in this era, there's too much crammed into an episode, and and mm, so, yeah. like you were saying, it kind of it does descend that stuff. Particularly historicals. I mean, the historical settings often get used as a backdrop rather than looking at why they're interesting. And I think yeah. those examples you've given are a good, you know, a good kind of uh, indications of that. And something like Power of the Doctor, where you know, they go to Russia in 1916. Really interesting. Could do something really good with that. But no, it's just kind of one small part of the story that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. I still wasn't quite sure why the Master was there.
0: I I I don't understand that at all. But there is quite a lot that I will forgive just for playing Boney M's Rasputin. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> I mean, if I have one sort of coherent aesthetic philosophy. It's that hearing bony M's Rasputin is just always going to be a good thing. Mm, mm.
1: I got to see the Masters just dance moves. (laughs) We have that shared history.
0: One more um, point that I want to make before we move on. I think we have a couple more points we want to get through as well. But one in particular that I really want to touch on. This one's a little unusual for this podcast, actually, because um, we've tended to talk When we talk about uh, different series, we've tended to mostly talk about the text of the episodes themselves, just because that's kind of what's available to us. We don't tend to talk so much about the sort of paratext around the episodes, but I really want to talk about the marketing for this era, Mm -hmm. era, because, yeah, Yeah. it's been appalling. Yeah. Absolutely appalling. (laughs) And I don't, I don't know what the reason for this is. I have some ideas, but you know, this is this is something where it may be that like there are kind of some kinds of internal pressures that we don't know about that we may find out about at some kind of later date. But it's been so strange how how little marketing there really has been for mm. a lot of this era. We've tended to get very short trailers, uh, which don't tend to show off very much. I mean, the series eleven trailer after a uh, woman who fell to earth aired was just the guest stars that would be in the rest of the series mm. even the air date of power of the doctor was only confirmed like two weeks before it was actually on mm. and it there's a kind of there seems to be well in fact i know there definitely is a kind of obsessive secrecy around quite a lot of of this era and i'm i i'm quite comfortable speculating about that because I know something similar was done with um, Broadchurch. Um, which obviously which Chris was also kind of in charge of. Where I think it, there's a reliance, there's been a reliance overall in this in this era on surprise as a kind of almost the primary reaction from the audience. So whether that be the kind of introduction or reintroduction of a, a villain, I mean most obviously there the, the master in Spyfall at the end of part one, or like, I mean, I suppose the the sort of key example of this would be the introduction of the fugitive doctor, which is also, I think, the, the one point where I think that really worked mm. uh, in this era, where this character was introduced and we just did not know what was going on. And that, for me, was actually kind of a highlight of the era, just because mm. it was a genuinely nice surprise, and it was great to see all kinds of, interesting speculation about who this was where they could fit into the doctor's timeline what this could mean going forward and it's really I feel the only time we've had that kind of interesting speculation about what could be going on in this era and I think this particularly stands out right now because of the sheer level of kind of um not even kind of overt marketing but the the level of kind of crumbs that Bad Wolf and Russell T. Davies have been throwing out for the the upcoming specials in twenty twenty three. Obviously kind of casting announcements, even a short trailer already, and just all kinds of like little bits and pieces, even like Davies kind of dropping little hints about things in interviews. All things that are kind of calculated to make people excited, to make people start speculating, to make people start wondering, oh, what could be going on? Like, even in terms of speculation about who's involved, like the fact that Rachel Talale was, was involved in directing, which kind of, I suspect, was deliberately allowed to kind of to leak a little bit, even in terms of like their kind of filming in public places to allow for this kind of inf- kind of information to circulate. That kind of thing has been so absent in this era and some of that might be a reaction against... I know um, like a lot of fans weren't terribly happy about the fact that the return of John Simms' master in World Enough and Time was in a trailer before that episode aired. Mm. Uh, which I you know, didn't really care about, to be honest. But uh, I can understand why people would. And so maybe on some level it's a kind of reaction against that kind of thing. But if so, it went ludicrously to the other extreme. Uh, to the extent that I think really kind of harmed the show in my eyes.
1: We still have John Bishop, though.
0: Well, yeah.
1: One mad lad posting set photos.
0: Oh yeah, John Bishop single-handedly being the marketing department for Doctor Who at one point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's nice, especially because, like, um, I know it's a bit. I know it's not probably not true. The thing going round about Disney having so involvement in. Doctor Who, that's from the Telegraph, but, like, people are talking about it.
3: Mm.
1: Like, not the, like, no publicity is bad publicity thing, but, like, at least some publicity (laughs) would be good. So it's kind of nice that people are talking about the show again and the logos out and all that stuff. Even if not all the fans are pleased by the revelations, that's part of the experience. Mm. Mm. Whereas if there's nothing, then it's kind of... it it feels sort of like the fandom aspect of it goes into hibernation a little bit. Yeah. Whereas actually it's kind of nice to have little details to obsess over and think about, ooh, what does this bit of the new logo or trailer or whatever mean and what's that and... I'm looking forward to that kind of stuff again. Even though I tend to like miss a lot of important things, I didn't realize that David Tennant was going to be the next Doctor.
0: I mean that that was like purely fan speculation. I so mean that's I, another good example. I was of that.
1: surprised.
0: <laughs> so before we move on, then is there anything we want to kind of uh, any more any more problems we want to talk about, or anything we want to kind of circle back
2: to? One thing that I do want to bring up is um, the Timeless Child plot line mm-hmm. because. I've kind of mentioned it, but I've not really explained (laughs) why I don't particularly care for it. Because I think you're right, I I definitely got the feeling, like you were saying before, that maybe this was there to explain the Morbius Doctors. I think there's definitely an element of that. But I also, again, like I was saying earlier, I don't have a problem with kind of mystifying the origins of the Doctor. I actually think that can be quite a good idea. What I have a problem with is the way in which it's been done in this particular instance, because again, I think I think there is a kind of problematic political element to it, where I think the the Moffat era had set up this kind of thing of the Doctor, you know, particularly in something like Hell Ben the Doctor being a kind of outsider, and in Listen as well, there's almost a suggestion that he's with the kind of the native race of Gallifrey rather than the Time Lords or something like that. That's what it seems to be. You know, he's outside of the city, kind of in that in the barn, and like I, I think there is a there was an attempt to try and kind of question, kind of maybe the, the sometimes aristocratic portrayals of the Doctor, and to kind of uh, do something where he was uh, a kind of outsider, which I thought was a good thing, and I think what's happened is they've now done the exact opposite of that, and the Doctor has become this kind of you know, sort of special one, if you like, or yeah. something. And like there I think there is a kind of way in which this that approach is is kind of speaking back to the the contemporary political moment because if you look at the way in which that whole storyline is framed, uh, you know, with the master kind of revealing the the truth, if you like, of the of the doctor's past. Incidentally that's done with no Dramatic tension whatsoever. <laughs> it's just kind of, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that you should build up over seasons and keep people hanging on about, rather than sort of immediately going into explanation of it after like half a season of speculation. All I like, you. I did like. I, I did think the the introduction of the Fugitive Doctor was interesting, but I think there is a political element in the sense of the Master describes how uh you know this kind of these experiments with regeneration turn the time lords into a self-appointed ruling elite and obviously the master in finding out this whole history destroys the whole of gallifrey essentially and 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 the time lords and i do think that phrasing of a self-appointing ruling elite seems to me to be trying to echo the kind of uh, political rhetoric that kind of so-called populists use, and whilst I think you know we can mount a very kind of robust critique of populism, particularly right-wing forms of populism, I also think that there are left forms of populism that are. Uh, I mean, I hate the word populism. It's not useful, but f- as a shorthand, I, I you know for what I'm describing, you know, kind of movements like. Trump and Brexit but also Sanders and Corbyn I think it's useful just for ease of communication but yeah it's there seems to be something in there of not accepting that actually some of the criticisms particularly from left populists of a kind of technocratic ruling elite and the way in which they maybe have curtailed democratic forms of engagement actually is a legitimate criticism and again this goes back to the liberalism of the era the fact that it does seem to be in some way condemning that invoking that stuff through the master um but yeah i find it i find it very elitist the way in which the characters kind of origin story has been changed i'm i'm not what i will say is i'm not critical on the basis that i want the show to be pure and unchanging which I think is yes. what some people seem to want some people don't seem to be happy with any form of kind of change whatsoever and I think I think the show does need to change and again I think that impulse that impulse was the right one it's just been executed in a very kind of uh underwhelming way
1: it's also just the the sort of making of the doctor as a sort of special character yeah just by a sort of accident of yeah well, not birth, but an accident of arriving mm. um through this portal rather than um anything sort of in terms of personality or temperament or mm. it's just a sort of uh specialness that is predestined by I think it would have been interesting if the child had not been the doctor that had given the regeneration yeah, yeah, yeah a lot I agree of speculation yeah that it was going to be some kind of riff on um, the ones who walk away from Omolos. Yeah. Which it kind of is, but I think that um, it's more. it would be more interesting to see the Doctor reckoning with the suffering of another person than with Mm. her own past suffering that she doesn't remember. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the only issue with that would be the fact that the show has done riffs on the ones who walk away from Omolos several times (laughs) in terms of like... It's a great thing. It is great, but like, yeah, like the beast below is probably the most obvious one and um, thin ice to an extent as well and things like that. But yeah, I I do I agree. And I, I think that special one impulse really irked me at the time and continues to. I think in terms of mystifying the Doctor's origin or re-mystifying the Doctor's origin, The Timeless Child strikes me as very strange because it's sort of pulling in both directions at once as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. On the one hand, it is mystifying the Doctor's origin because there's a sense of, oh, where did they come from originally? Mm. But then it also gives us uh, what seems to be a fairly complete list of, like, everyone they've ever been. And this kind of tracks them through, through history, mm. uh, or through their, their personal mm. history. And it goes, um, it
2: goes back to kind of something that Ben Aronovich said about the, you know, the, the kind of the McCoy era when they were trying to do that re-mystification. Mm. I remember seeing an interview, he said, you don't want to give it away because then you spoil the mystery. And that was the kind of problem they had of knowing when to Hmm. do what, you know, to say what. And I think, I think here is, is, you're right. He kind of, it's pulling in both directions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I mean, I don't really have any more to say about the, the timeless child thing. I think, in a way, what's strange about it, given it how much it had been built up as this sort of huge revelation after which nothing would ever be the same again, is the extent to which everything is the same again <laughs> afterwards. Like, it's had surprisingly little impact mm. on the rest of the series. There was the Tecto stuff in uh, the sort of back half of, of Flux uh, and some kind of implied ramifications from that but otherwise other than a a couple of glorified cameos frankly from joe martin Mm. not much uh which is kind of i think almost fairly damning in itself the extent to which you can apparently do this big restructuring of the doctor's origin and it has virtually no knock-on effects Mm. Other than popping her in prison at the beginning of the next episode, so yeah, I think um, if if we're finished with if we're finished with the core problems of the era, then it might be time. This might be, in fact, be a good segue to move on to the timeless child herself. Well, not really, but the thirteenth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a few points that I really want to talk about with the thirteenth Doctor, but I think the place we have to start really. Uh, as I've kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, is just the sheer fact of her gender, of her being the first female doctor. How do we think this has been handled? Has it been done well or has it not been done well?
1: I think there's been attempts to kind of engage with um the doctor's experience being a woman. I don't think that they've been done very um, successfully necessarily because I think the main one I can think of is the Witchfinders.
0: I would say the Witchfinders is the only one I can okay. think of really. But sorry, go on. But
1: um, I think that it just doesn't seem to have been something they were particularly interested in exploring, like how that would inform her hmm. interactions with the world. I also think that obviously it is good that this is an era with a female doctor, but I think that in sort of lauding this era for having the first female doctor, we kind of ignore the fact that groundwork was already being laid for that throughout much of the Moffat era. So, um, it's also kind of a team effort (laughs) Mm. in that sense. Um, although, you know, obviously it is an exciting first. Mm. This is kind of an example that I was saying about how the Chibnall era kind of gets quite easy plaudits for not doing very much. I've seen, I see a lot of, I see takes every time something happens where a character the Doctor's known previously finds out that the Doctor is woman now and they're, like, accepting of it. I see a lot of takes that are like, oh, isn't it nice that um, these people found out that the Doctor transitioned... They just think the Doctor transitioned and they're cool with that. Which I can see that, but also it feels a bit disingenuous of the show to be kind of... I, I feel like, I don't know if they knew they would get those kinds of reactions, but it feels a bit disingenuous to get that, but then also not really want to explore at all the way in which gender affects the character and how it might mirror a sort of, any kind of trans narrative. Like, mm. Yeah, so that's my thoughts about the Doctor's gender.
0: Yeah, I fully agree basically. I, th- I think it's, it's kind of strange how to my mind, how little the, the era has really engaged with how the Doctor's experience of the world or worlds, if you like, might be different as a woman. There's been the odd sort of like allusion to it, uh, particularly early on in like series 11. And to be clear, I don't think the I think the impulse that the Doctor's characterization and the sort of way in which they interact with the world should be basically the same as a a woman, I think is absolutely correct. Like, I I think that that is the right way to go about things. But in a way, I think the show slightly overcorrects in that direction. There's very little kind of sense of what this change means to the Doctor. And in a way, the fact that it seems to mean very little is kind of a point in itself. But I still... Uh, and one that kind of mirrors some of the, the dialogue from World Enough in Time, for instance, when um, the Twelfth Doctor is talking to Bill uh, about how Time Lords regenerate. But as, even if that is the case, and if that is the point that wants to get across, which is fair enough in a way, I wish we had seen some of that. Like, I think that if that's the point you want to make, then make it. Mm. Don't just kind of elide mm. it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Oh, I should say, actually, if I don't mean to be harsh towards people that do enjoy the aspects of the show where people are nice about the Doctor's gender, because if that is something you enjoy, I do not want to be harsh about it. It's just something that I personally have found to be lacking. Although obviously that goes for a lot of what we're going to be saying this Mm. episode, doesn't it? Like, if you enjoyed it, good. You also have a right to not enjoy things. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. I, I, I fully agree with like everything you said. Like I, I think the only other thing I'd maybe add as well is that I feel like I think there's something problematic in you know, Chris Jim when he came in, he's talked about the idea that he wanted this era to be an ensemble piece. Like I think he sold it to Bradley Walsh as kind of like, Oh, it's gonna be more like uh like Star Trek and that it's gonna be a team effort. And I, I, I do feel uncomfortable with the idea that the moment the the Doctor has become a woman, we have three companions to kind of take the focus off her and it's become it's become a team, an ensemble thing. And that just seems to me very odd, especially coupled with how kind of unsure of herself Whittaker's Doctor could be sometimes. And I also think the other point to make is I just feel like her characterization has been very very flat yep. like there's this kind of goes back to comments that were being made earlier but there's no it's not multifaceted there's no complexity all the kind of darkness has been extracted from the character i'd say for the most part i you know there aren't many points where she does something that's morally ambiguous and it's questioned i don't think that happens very much um mm. and i think that's kind of an issue too
0: Yeah, I think the ensemble thing is interesting because I think um, I understand that's kind of that's something that was sort of briefed to the writers as well. Mm. And that there was going to be a focus on on the companions, which is kind of strange because that didn't really pan out, Mm. uh, as I'm sure we'll be talking about soon. But I also think there's a degree to which and again, I don't want this to go too sort of ad hominem. I don't want this to be a psychoanalysis of Chris Chisholm. (laughs) But uh, a point that I've seen made fairly frequently is that he does have a clear kind of aesthetic urge towards or like fondness for uh, Peter Davison's era. I think you can see that in aspects of the way the Doctor is characterized, which I think Mm. we'll probably get to in a minute. And I think also that bigger TARDIS team, which is something that was quite characteristic of that era. So there's a sense in which it's kind of there's it is kind of harking back there in a way that I think um, well, I think actually power of the doctor is the, the final kind of strong piece of evidence for that argument, actually, uh, in terms of Tegan's role in it and her interaction with the fifth doctor, in fact. So there is that as well. But I do agree that it is it's unfortunate that those kind of elements should happen to coincide. And I do think it is a coincidence, but should happen to coincide with the first female doctor. That's something that could perhaps have been thought through more. yeah And it leads me on to what I think is my, my biggest sort of um, my biggest issue with this iteration of the character, who is certainly far from my favorite, certainly of the modern era. It's a, and it, it, this is a point that's been made again and again, but I think it can't be made enough. There is a weird passivity. To the 13th Doctor in a lot of instances. She seems bizarrely unwilling to intervene uh, in various circumstances. Branwell, you've talked a little bit about this already. Mm-hmm. When she does, her kind of her principles are really quite strange. Even as early as The Woman Who Fell to Earth. When she confronts Tim Shaw. I don't like calling him Tim Shaw because it feels very weird to mock an alien's name in that way. Uh, and to, like, anglicize it. When she confronts him, she kind of... the There's almost a sense in which she kind of... She mocks him for cheating at his weird predator type of game. Rather than for kind of confronting him over killing people. Uh, it's kind of a small, but I think kind of a revealing interaction. That is the same interaction in which she sort of almost sums up her moral code, such as it is... As sorting out fair play throughout the universe, which is a phrase that uh, I think is quite revealing in a lot of ways. Even just that that kind of that phrase fair play implies an adherence to a sort of um, almost like a, a a sort of common sense idea of morality, but also weirdly almost paradoxically um, a sense that there are rules that must be followed and uh and so a kind of if you if you like a lawful idea of um of morality and i mean those two things sit slightly oddly together for a start i think but also it that, that seems to be the only real moral force that the 13th doctor has going for her for for all that she kind of seems to refuse to kill she doesn't seem to value life all that much i mean there are numerous instances where some character or other ends up sacrificing themselves for her uh, and she just kind of lets them or like at least doesn't raise much of a protest which feels very very strange and there's also there is a sense in which and this, this is um partly the characterization of the doctor in the scripts and partly i think jodie whittaker's performance there's a sense in which she is i think this goes back a little to what jacob was saying She's very kind of consciously not someone who sort of dominates a scene. She will sort of hang back a little bit more. And that is, for one thing, I think it is, that is itself a kind of echo of uh, what, what Peter Davison did. Although I think he did it more successfully, uh, certainly in his better stories. In something like Kinda, I think he kind of, that kind of hanging around the edges becomes a kind of a force in itself but also i think it's kind of a reaction maybe to the more kind of grandstanding style of certainly david tennant and matt smith capaldi at times maybe uh, although i'm not i don't think it's quite as consistent with him but again i think that goes back to that is something that is kind of unfortunate that the first female doctor should be someone who seems to kind of almost be be hanging back sort of like aware of almost I don't want to use the phrase knowing her place, even ironically, but like, you know what I mean? There is that aspect of kind of um, the idea that she can't, almost can't or won't sort of stride into the center of a scene and take charge. And again, it's not that I think that is inherently a bad thing in a doctor. Again, I think uh, Davison did it well. I think, again, Capaldi does it well uh, when that's when that's more the kind of thing he's doing. Patrick Troughton does it very well. McCoy does it well at times. Uh, That's one of the elements of the Doctor that he sort of embodies as well. The problem is, I have some idea what all of those Doctors stand for. What they are likely to do when confronted with injustice. I'm never quite that sure when it comes to the 13th Doctor. And I think that is probably the best summary of why i'm not terribly fond of her that i can come up with
1: there is another sort of germ of an idea of like the ethical viewpoint in the kind of bearing witness thing which was quite a big thing in um, Mm.
0: yes you're absolutely right series
1: 11 was it yeah um i think has been less so in more recent series i think series 11 is probably the best of the 13th doctors series yeah i think i
0: would tend to agree
1: obviously particularly and I know we've already mentioned it but it's like so the demons of the Punjab (laughs) Mm. I think that's where it's most sort of convincingly articulated um and I think that that could have been something but I think that the trouble is it doesn't really get taken on board in other in other in in, in other series really because I think there's maybe a little bit more of it in that one but like the idea of a doctor that was sort of driven to go and um be there when nobody else will, even if they are not able to change things, I think is potentially quite interesting. It is a different vision of the character Hmm. than what we have seen before, but Hmm. I think that's kind of what I want from a new Doctor. Like, Hmm. Hmm. you want to see what is this actor, what is this version of the character from the writers going to bring to my understanding of the character, and I don't know that there's been that much of that. I do have like a slight uncharitable theory that maybe um unconsciously or consciously they played it a bit safe because it's the first female doctor and so sort of gave a kind of confection of doctorishness mm. with all the kind of harkening back to well all all eras but particularly Davies era the first. I do wonder about about that and I kind of wish that Jodie Whittaker as an actor have been maybe given more of a chance to to put her own spin on the character, mm-hmm. which I don't necessarily see to have been to have been given. Because there is a thematic thing, like if you're going to do the Timeless Child thing as the Doctor of this um, character who has suffered immense childhood trauma, there's an idea there of like, there was no one there to witness what mm, happened to her. And so... There's an impulse maybe in this incarnation of the Doctor to go around and be there to say, This happened, it was unjust, but it was real to like other people going through similar things throughout the universe. I think that could be interesting, but I'm not sure that it ever, I'm not sure if it ever quite joins the dots on that, if it was ever really supposed to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting idea, and I mean, I'd echo what you said about demons of the Punjab, just because I think. That is the closest the era ever really comes to giving a moral force to that kind of that. I call it a lack of intervention, and I I think it's a real shame that it wasn't followed up. Especially because you're, I think that's a really great idea. I think that could have been a really interesting sort of link to this um this revelation about the Doctor's past. Mm. There's one final brief point that I want to make about the 13th Doctor. I don't know if either of you have any more to say about her specifically. I do. And this is a positive note, actually, which is nice. I actually quite like the 13th Doctor's voice, so to speak, just in terms of the way that she speaks. I think it's um, it's recognizable. Uh, It's 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 unique, actually. It's quite um, I at one point a couple of years ago, I tried to write basically a 13th Doctor episode and I found I was very easily able to kind of slip into her voice just the little turns of phrase and things that you would use mm. uh, and that's a writing a distinctive voice like that is quite is an underrated skill and I think both writers and Jodie Whittaker herself are to be are definitely to be commended on that because I think it's um it's quite an achievement it feels both very doctor and very unique at the same time I think is the best mm. way I can describe it So, since we've now covered the 13th Doctor, we will move on to talking about uh, some of her companions and also maybe a couple of the other recurring characters in the era. So, in terms of companions, uh, if we take a roughly chronological approach to them, actually, and begin with actually the first character to appear on screen in the Chris Chibnall era, unless you count, like, the very end of time, uh, twice upon a time, which is Ryan now Brianwell I know you, you and I have talked quite a bit about Ryan specifically actually so uh, do you want to kind of start can us off
1: I do yeah I mean a lot of my things that I have to say about individual companions are kind of general comments which is I think that a lot of them don't well quite a few of them don't really get enough time to um, be full, fully realised personalities on screen and I think that Ryan is unfortunately one of those I struggle with the way that he is, I think, quite infantilised by the narrative a lot of the time, which I Mm. think plays in um, uncomfortably with the fact that he is, um, I guess, maybe the first companion with a disability. Although I'm not sure about that because it's like shades of you're not quite sure with everybody. But um, they obviously wanted to do something by portraying him as a character with dyspraxia which I think is a really interesting idea and um, I think it's something that from what I hear Tosin Cole was quite keen on getting throughout but I'm not sure that the writing is really consistent. I'm probably gonna defer to Kieran a bit on this because Kieran has lived experience <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know that they ever really consistently thought out how his disability was going to affect different tasks that he might have to do um, in his time on the TARDIS. And I think that that means that it becomes a bit of like a sort of appearing and disappearing phenomenon rather than something that Mm. we see informing everything he does. I also feel like a lot of the time Ryan's in a role of being told things by other companions slash the Doctor, like Mm. in um, Rosa... um, He's being told stuff by Graham about what Grace told Graham, even though Ryan was raised by Grace. And it feels Mm. like maybe he should be the person to have some of that knowledge, although that instance in isolation might not seem so strange. But then there's also the thing in Kablam when they're at the um, doing the job that is the job that Ryan does working in a warehouse And it's shown that everybody else is better at that than him because that's one of the times when his dyspraxia is shown. But it feels a bit like, well, he does this all the time, so it might be Mm. a good chance to show that what we think of as like non skilled work actually requires a lot of like physical effort as well as, you know, actually being (laughs) actually involving skills (laughs) that not everybody has or has developed. I wish that there'd been like more more of a sort of um, a love interest for Ryan. Mm. Just because it's kind of weird that neither he or Yaz get one until, you know, the, the Thasmin prospect is what I will call it. Hmm. And it just seems unrealistic because apart from anything else, they're both young, good-looking people. And, you know, I think other people than James the first would be interested in Ryan. <laughs> I do think that like the dynamic with Graham was interesting in series 11 where they were kind of tentatively reaching a a way of relating to each other. I do think it, I think that was kind of fumbled in the execution of it by having them kind of resolve that too early, I would say. But I think that was a compelling kind of story for Ryan in that series but unfortunately I don't think that he really got to develop his own kind of plot lines as the show went forward and so it became about his relationship to somebody else rather than his rather than him himself growing and, and changing as a person.
0: Yeah I mean like I, I definitely agree with all of that and I, I, will, I will take up that bat on in terms of his dyspraxia. Because, yeah, as, as um, Ranwell sort of alluded to, I am dyspraxic. And so I was, I was really quite pleased when um, when Ryan was introduced and, like, overtly mentioned his dyspraxia. Because it's just not something you see on screen very much. Like, I, I struggle to recall really any other dyspraxic characters on on TV at any point during my life. So it is really nice to see and there's, that there is kind of a more uh, growing awareness of it. I do think that awareness might have been helped had Ryan been, had Ryan's dyspraxia had any practical influence on really most of the episodes he was in or anything he ever had to do, because it does seem to kind of disappear most of the time. I mean, it's it's there obviously in the woman who fell to earth as the whole thing with him learning to ride a bike on a slope as um, Branwell and I were talking about <laughs> a little while ago, actually, which suddenly seems very strange. But anyway, and that that actually, I think, is a well-chosen thing because I can't ride a bike. I've never been able to. And it is like, it is it would have been useful to me throughout my life, but I've just never been able to. Mm. So I, I thought that was a well-chosen example. Then in the next episode, in the Ghost Monument, there's a, uh, this ties beautifully back to um, Branwell's point about, um, as they put it in their notes, piss poor humor, actually. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a moment where um, he like, uh, my memory is a little fuzzy on this, so excuse me if I get the details slightly wrong. But um, he sort of shoots a bunch of robots, having like just picked up a gun for presumably the first time. And when asked how he developed these mad skills, he talks about how much he's played Call of Duty. Now, I play a lot of video games. That doesn't mean I can shoot with any degree of accuracy, uh, having never picked up a gun before, and hopefully never picking up a gun. <sighs> but it, that is, a, I think, a pretty strong practical example of his magical disappearing disability. I mean, the other one that always comes to my mind is the... Um, strange series arc that he has in series 12 where in Spyfall part one there's a scene of him playing basketball with his friends uh, which brings me down to a point i'll talk about again in a minute actually and sort of seeming to struggle at it which again i can't play basketball very well i don't know how that feels for all sorts of reasons really (laughs) um then in the timeless children uh there's a scene where he's Again, my memory is slightly fuzzy on this, but he's he's throwing a bomb at some cybermen yeah. in much the manner that one would throw a, a basketball and does it more or less perfectly. And somehow this seems to be some kind of like, call it ersatz character development for him. Mm. Uh, that he, you know, his disability disappeared over the course of a series, uh, which is nice for him. That, that would be a very nice thing to happen, but not terribly practical and also just really quite insulting to anyone with dyspraxia actually watching
1: also it's not that nice of a thing to happen if it's something you've learned to like live with and accept as a part of yourself i'd be okay with
0: it <laughs> i know what That's you mean bad. but uh, i'm not dyspraxic i don't get to choose <laughs> um i remember seeing some really good threads on twitter with people describing talking about like there are all sorts of s- small ways in which this could have played into its character like there could have been a scene where he was just having difficulty you know having difficulty reading a map which is a thing that some dyspraxic people struggle with um and then graham like kind of subtly helps him and mm. uh, which is then gives you a nice character moment between them as well as having this um just this relatively subtle moment where we are reminded that ryan is going to struggle with things or and the the warehouse example is really good for this actually we could see some ways that he has learned to kind of to live with and to to work around the the difficulties that he does have. And ways in which these kind of give him a slightly different perspective, maybe. Or just ways in which they, they could be useful. Just really anything, frankly. And I, I want to circle back to the thing about him playing basketball with his friends. Because I think it speaks to... And this is not something that is unique to Ryan. But I think it's particularly evident with him. Which is that he doesn't have much of a life. Or really character outside of his travels in the TARDIS. Hmm. He seems to have friends, but like not consistently between episodes. There's that one friend of his in Can You Hear Me? And then the, and there's the group that he's playing uh, basketball with in Spyfall Part 1. But we don't ever really hear about any of them ever again. In Woman Who Fell to Earth, he's introduced to making a YouTube video, which seems to be something that he does kind of on the reg uh also in that episode he talks about um his like contribution to the search is that he's going to check on social media which does feel like a very i don't really understand how social media works kind of character point but anyway there's clearly kind of a sense there that that is his thing he is kind of internet savvy this is this is something he can maybe bring to the team never mentioned again never it's really strange I, it's it seems like such a basic thing in terms of characterization, and then it just it's just gone. So, yeah i I want to like Ryan a lot more uh, than I do because there's a real kind of charm to Toast and Cole, even if his his accent is slightly weird. Um, oh,
1: I love his weird accent.
0: Yeah. Um, and like he's he's. He's clearly trying to do something to kind of bring something to this cipher of a character, but unfortunately, it's just not enough.
2: Mm-hmm. I well, I agree with everything you've both said. I I think you're right. I think he you know he's not he's not a well drawn character. He's not given a lot of background. There is no real character development apart from like you said these kind of very superficial. And quite insulting things, you know, with the the basketball example, and it's not just him. Obviously, I think it's symptomatic. You know, it's other characters as well in the series are like that. I mean, I think Graham and and Dan are probably the two that are drawn the best and given the most backstory, which I think is problematic in and of itself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like yeah, I don't I don't really have a lot to add. I think you've pretty much covered covered everything that I would have said. Um, yeah, it's it's a real shame because I think, I uh, yeah, again, I think Tosin Cole is quite likeable and I think does the best that he can with, you know, what's quite, a, like, a, uh, you know, meagre material, really.
1: I mean, my sort of alternative idea for what they could have done with Ryan as well as, like, leaning more into the kind of tech-savvy thing, is I think a logical point to go from him kind of reconciling with Graham is for a new tension to emerge in that relationship where he wants to be more independent Mm. and Graham is kind of not quite sure how to navigate, like helping Ryan with things that are difficult to him versus like helping him to get the skills and the confidence to kind of navigate his own way in the world. I think that could have been interesting and also, I, I think that the kind of the final time that we see Ryan when he's still trying to learn to ride his bike in the same mm. place, I think that that really shows how, he, I mean, it's literally like he didn't, you know, he didn't go anywhere. Yeah. But I think that surely the the thing that I would have thought, thought would be the lesson from that initial introduction is that, like, maybe he's not going to learn to ride the bike, but he can find other ways to navigate the world or to do the things that he wants to do but it's really strange to have to have him go back to that place I suppose they did it to try and be like but his disability can't go away but like everybody knows that except for sometimes the writing team Mm. (laughs) so I feel like there was a missed opportunity to show how any of them really grow from their time in the TARDIS but um Mm. I think it's particularly a shame with, with Ryan there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, moving on from Ryan, um, because we've mentioned Graham already quite mm. a few times, funnily enough, which is perhaps indicative in and of itself. But um I mean Jacob, what what do you have to tell us about Graham?
2: I mean I you know, like I, I quite like him as a character at times. Like I think, you know, like Look, like, I think he is quite likeable, and I think he's probably he's probably kind of the one who's most fleshed out of of all of the companions, I'd say. But, like, I do think that's a problem in and of itself, because, I mean, we've talked kind of about kind of diversity and representation, and I think it's indicative of how kind of superficial some of the representation is, because the... The characters who have been most fleshed out are, you know, the middle aged white men. Uh, you know, which which kind of really speaks to a sort of deficiency in in the representation and the diversity that there is. Yeah, I mean again, I don't really have a lot to say. I mean I, I think you're right about the kind of the relationship between him and Ryan, I think is interesting in the first season, but gets wrapped up too easily. Mm. I think it's also a problem uh, in that uh, Grace's character gets killed off right in the first episode, hmm. which again just seems to be kind of a. a uh, I don't know, it sort of plays into a trope. And I'm not saying this is intentional, it could well just be accidental, but it does play into a trope of kind of, uh, you know, kind of BAME, BAME characters kind of getting killed off almost immediately. And then Grace just beca- kind of becomes this way and the loss of Grace becomes this way of defining Graham's character rather than him being defined kind of in and of him himself and, and her getting more of a, you know, a kind of an opportunity to kind of be drawn out. Because I do think she I found her kind of quite compelling as well, um, mm-hmm. but she's only in the one episode and then kind of brief appearances after. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean that's all I really have to say about him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I, I I agree with all of that. I think I would I'd go and even maybe go slightly further. I think it's not just that um, Graham is the best developed of the companions. I think it is specifically that he his development comes at the expense, yeah, of yeah. Ryan and Yaz mm. because I think. He is the one who seems to at times to be centered to a strange degree. I mean the the standout here is Rosa, which it's not totally about him. I mean there are there are points in that episode where Ryan and Yaz get to kind of reflect on their own experiences of racism. but it, it's it's strange how much Graham being a bus driver, who was married to a black woman mm. seems to kind of somehow make him the center of this story.
1: I wonder if maybe that element was introduced in Rosa to like as a thought of like, oh, we'll, we'll need to give Graham something to do, hmm. um, which does actually make sense. Were it not for the fact that he has so much to do, like all the rest of the time. Yeah, and I think yeah, it probably wouldn't have hurt any to to make that more of a unapologetically ryan and yaz centric episode
0: yeah it's kind of, it's it's a i mean it goes back a little to what you were saying before about the the crowded tardis team and that these kinds of things happen where one character will get time at the expense of another mm. uh, it just keeps happening to be graham i mean I, I do think it is worth saying that uh as if we've alluded to a little bit already like Bradley Walsh is a lot of fun in the role. Yeah, uh, he's clearly having a lot of fun, but also there's a genu- There is a genuine charm to Graham, and for all that, a lot of the humour of the era is quite bad. Uh, a lot of the stuff that does work is the stuff that he gets, or perhaps that he mm. makes. Even mm. the standout Graham moment for me is the bit in Orphan 55 where he <laughs> where he talks about going and having a sit down. And then getting up and going, having a sit down somewhere else, Mm. which is Mm. which I enjoyed quite a lot on just a quite a a visceral level. Branwell, do you have anything more to say on Graham?
1: Not really, to be honest, other than that, you know, broadly like him, I think Bradley Walsh's performance is engaging and sweet. I think his, I think Graham's relationship with Ryan, although I wish that they had done kind of more with it, I think that was well acted. Um, hmm. And quite, you know, charming. But yeah, I would I, I agree with the criticisms of his role in the show. And also the extent to which sometimes Graham is taking time away from even the Doctor is quite hmm. is quite odd.
0: Well, uh, from one middle-aged white man to another, let's talk a bit about Dan. And I say let's talk a little bit about Dan in my notes for this episode. For each heading, specifically for each of the companions, I have, like, you know, two or three bullet points, um, a few kind of full sentences, bits and pieces around them. Under Dan's name, I have written one bullet point, which says, quote, I have nothing at all to say about Dan. Aww. End quote. And I do feel bad about that, because, like, I... I like John Bishop in the role. I think he's, he's he's again, like Bradley Walsh, quite charming. He's enjoying himself a lot. I just have nothing to say about Dan as a character. I really struggle to come up with anything to, to say about him. He's distinct from Graham, sure, but not in any way that I find particularly interesting one way or another. Hmm. I mean, the... The closest I can come to even thinking of a specific interesting character moment for him is the bit in um, the in his first episode where he doesn't take food from a food bank and which I've as I kind of struggled with because I don't really know what it's trying to say because uh, if it, it's it's a maybe a character beat about his kind of pride or something but it, that's not really something that's ever followed up uh, so I find it a bit strange. But anyway, I will, I will leave it to both of you to, to provide content for this point because I've got nothing.
1: <laughs> okay, so Dan is the number one lesbian ally. Um, I know. I mean, like that—that that sounded harsh, but like <laughs> I do find it kind of funny how he like brings out the the Yaz and the Doctor relationship. He was really committed to trying to make Thasmin happen, and I applaud him for that. But um, yeah, I think John Bishop is very sweet. I think he probably would have been very funny if there'd been like particularly good jokes written for him, but there weren't. I find it difficult to establish what Dan's arc was as a companion because the only thing that he really says when he's leaving the TARDIS and the the power of the Doctor is just he's got a life to get back to, but it's not really clear what that life is. And from what we've seen of it in his first episode, it's not an uncomplicatedly good life that he's having. Basically, he's struggling financially. So it leaves us with the kind of like difficult thing of like, is he leaving just to go back and struggle again? Or are we supposed to surmise that his time with the doctor has given him the skills and experience necessary to pull himself up by his bootstraps and get back on the labour market? I probably don't think it's that, but I think that it's weird to not imply that he's really gained anything other than he was there for a while, but now he wants to go and do other things.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not really clear what those other things are, for that matter. He has a date. Apparently, yeah. (laughs) A very very off-screen date.
1: With who? (laughs) Carbonista.
0: Presumably, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I mean, he goes back to his... His absent house, for that matter, mm. he goes back to the space where his house was, and is like, "Oh yeah, that's gone."
1: His asset.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh well.
1: Or maybe he was renting.
0: Oh. In which case, in
1: solidarity. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm.
0: Uh, Jacob. Um, what are your what are your damn thoughts? My damn
2: thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, again, I agree with everything you've said. Like, I, I think. Uh, like I do find him entertaining at times. I think I like John Bishop. I just I just think that yeah he he doesn't really develop because you know he's he's not there for long and also this era just doesn't really seem to do much character development. Um, I I think his exit is very badly handled. I don't under I, I said this earlier. I don't understand the logic of having him depart at the start of Power of the Doctor in kind of this very sort of offhand way. I don't understand why they didn't do it in a more kind of structured like interesting way maybe at the end of the previous season. I also think there's a problem, we we kind of talked about this when he got introduced I think there's a problem with him being introduced when Yaz had had so little character development yeah. anyway uh, it seemed like the, the better thing to do would have been to just have Yaz and the Doctor and then given her more time to kind of develop. But yeah, yeah, that's that's all I have, really.
0: I do vividly remember uh, in the run-up to Revolution of the Daleks when it, it had been announced that Bradley Walsh and Justin Gold were leaving. Uh, all of the people being really excited for, oh yeah, it's going to be the, the thir- 13th Doctor and Yaz. It's going yes, to be the first time yes, we've yes. ever had a, an all-female TARDIS team. This is amazing. And then the end of Revolution of the Daleks... And there was John Bishop, in the middle of a Liverpool street, and everyone was like, "Oh, okay then." And yeah, that's that's probably as good a summary of his his role in the show uh, as we'll get. And it also brings us neatly on to the um, the primary companion. I think it's fair to say of this era, the one who again is present for the whole tenure of the Doctor, which is not unprecedented, but unusual. Mm. From not too far into Woman Who Fell to Earth to not too far from the end of Power of the Doctor, which is Yaz. We've already alluded to Yaz a little bit here uh, a couple of times uh, in ways that are probably probably making the at least the tenor of what we're going to say here somewhat clear. But uh, yeah, I mean... In terms of the details, Jacob, do you want to start us off?
2: Yeah, it's very frustrating um, because, you know, this is kind of the character who is with this Doctor from start to finish and yet is kind of not really fleshed out very much at all. You know, she has kind of a... She has a well. She doesn't have much of a backstory. What well, I mean is, like her, her kind of like her being a police officer. It could be interesting. You know, there are skills there that could be interesting for, like her role in the team. And I, I don't think that ever really gets developed very much. Again, a bit like Ryan's dyspraxia, it comes up every now and then, um, mm. occasionally when they remember it, but it's not really. Yeah, like like she's not really given much to do in spite of the fact that she obviously has a lot of skills that she could use. I also i am not a fan of the whole Doctor and Yasmin thing because, I mean, I don't like Doctor-companion relationships anyway. But I also think that even if you do like that, I think it's badly handled. Like, it's sort of, it's brought up... Again, there's no kind of structure to the way in which things are brought up in this era... Because it sort of, it comes up in Eve of the Daleks with with very little kind of build up to it, in the two seasons beforehand, I would say, and and in um, and in Eve of the Daleks as and in Flux, sorry, it, yeah, it's not really built up. Then it kind of explicitly gets addressed in in Legend of the Sea Devils, very briefly, again in a way that feels kind of a bit out of nowhere, and then it kind of gets. I know they kind of basically establish oh we probably shouldn't do this you know because of the nature of the should <laughs> Yeah yeah because of the nature of the doctor's life and all this kind of thing but yeah. there's there's no there's no follow up on that in in power of the doctor at all like there should be something there like <laughs> you know like even if it's just like a kind of emotional response to the kind of frustration of not being able to go through with that but there's there's nothing at all like, it's mm. so strange and i found i know why they did it it's because obviously they want a new start for the next era but i did find the kind of the thing at the end where the doctor said i have to do this bit on my own mm. and yaz was kind of like obviously upset but like okay it was i i know that just felt weird to me like if they've established this connection Mm-hmm. That should surely have been a much more kind of painful scene than it was. And I, I, I yeah, it, it, very, very strange. That's, that's all I have to say, really. But yeah.
0: It's so bizarre that Yaz is, as I say, clearly the primary companion of this era. And yet she gets so little in terms of any concrete development. Yeah, the, I mean, her her departure is str- not quite as abrupt as Dan's, but still quite strange in, ter- in terms of how it comes about. There, I saw some people joking that like she goes into that strange companion support group thing and sa- presumably says, like, oh, well, I had to leave the Doctor because obviously she has to be alone when she regenerates. And then Tegan and Mel are like, well, mm, yeah, about that... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the Tasman the, the, the thing as well. It's it's so kind of incredibly bare bones. There's so little there. I would say 90% of what is there is yearning looks from Mandip Gill, <laughs> who is, bless her, trying her absolute best to sell yeah. the hell out of this yeah. even when there is nothing there in the script for her to cling on to.
2: I mean that's something that really frustrates me as well is like I can see she's a really good actress mm. and they're giving her nothing. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. It's such a waste. So.
1: Yeah so I also agree with what Jacob was saying about them not really doing anything with Yaz being a cop even though there are clearly interesting things to be done with it. Not least when it find- when it's discovered that the Doctor was also sort of a cop mm. in Division or whatever that was. And I think there's interesting, like, I mean, especially it being such a topic at the moment, there are interesting ethical concerns that they could have got into with that if they had been interested to do so. Because I think that's kind of what they were playing at doing in the Daleks one where they've got Daleks being used for, like, crowd control revolution of the daleks. revolution of the daleks thank you i'm really bad for episode names at the best of times um there are interesting things but i just don't think that it's ever really and it's not entirely clear i don't think if she ever stops working as a police officer mm. and if so when because i think it's been suggested to me that when she has her like conspiracy board that that is she's stopped working then because she's devoted her time to that Which I do understand, but also I'd have appreciated a check in on like what, where everyone was at. It's also not clear if Ryan has stopped working or how he's, Mm. like what he's doing, like how he's doing financially. So I, I think there was a number of check ins missed on that kind of thing. Yaz is obviously woefully underserved, as we said, for being the main companion. It's interesting that what I would say is the best, like, spoiler for the top three, but, like, it's the best episode of the era. Demons of the Punjab is mostly about Yaz and her family, so clearly there was, like, a great deal of potential in her character that never was explored. Mandip Gill is great. I should give my, my rundown on Thasmin. I have seen some debate, like, consistently, actually, but especially after Power of the Doctor, about whether... Thasmin constitutes queerbaiting I think this is slightly a unwinnable and futile debate because I think that it may not fit the technical definition of queerbaiting but I think it is still kind of shitty um and not particularly good storytelling or particularly good representation just because I think it probably I don't fully believe I don't believe basically that Thasmin was always planned as being like Mm. a a romantic couple in the show. Mm. I think early on they're probably hinting more at a sort of Ryan and Yaz relationship, which yeah. I would have been interested in. Uh, I think there's compelling stuff there. And I do I do not know when that started to change, but I suspect it is later than people starting to ship the Thirteenth Doctor and Yaz. Yeah. But I'd have to re watch to see but I don't I think it was quite late that they decided to introduce that? Although it's possible that Mandip Gill was like playing it that way earlier because mm. um, she does seem quite keen on support and like representing that for the fans, which I think is nice. Mm. The specific ways in which I think that the way that Thasmin was used on the show was bad, uh, whether or not it technically constitutes queer baiting, are basically that I think it's rubbish to wait until the last what three episodes to even introduce it as a theme. I think if you're going to do it, you need to make it over earlier.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that unless you make stuff really, really obvious for an audience that is not invested in queer themes, then it's not that great representation because a lot of like people who aren't queer themselves are just gonna it's gonna go right over their heads even if they explicitly say that they like fancy each other and stuff. I just feel like the way that it was rounded off in Power of the Doctor was really shit. Because, um, it's like, I was joking beforehand that they were going to kiss, but in the most, like, unsatisfying way possible. And, um, I think it's rubbish that they didn't even get them, they didn't even get an on-screen kiss, because it is kind of what Jacob was saying, where obviously, um, they come up to the they come to the opinion of it's wrong for them to have this relationship, but is that not spicy? Does that not facilitate drama? Mm, mm. I mean, I get that like the last episode of the era is the wrong time to do it, but if you're gonna even insinuate that that kind of relationship could be there, then I feel that you have a duty to sort of carry it through into something compelling. But it's just like Yaz gets sad, sapphic yearning, and that's it. Mm. We don't even really know if the Doctor fancies her mm. or if the Doctor just sees her as a friend. There's no kind of hope for what kind of life she might have after this romantic attraction because we don't know if it's ended in Power of the Doctor. The way that mm. um, it's being played seems to suggest that it hasn't, but the writing could go either way. And it just kind of sucks that like a character that we know to be queer and have a history with depression is just left... like. Going mm. to the weird meeting where they are specified that they don't want to get locked up for talking about what they've been through so the destigmatizing mental illness thing didn't get very far then mm. and also it's framed as if they are like ad- somehow addicted to the doctor mm. and that's poor I feel bad because he has got a raw deal, but I think there was potential. And I'd be interested to see what Mandip Gill goes on to do in other projects.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, on the one hand, I, I do often feel like queer baiting is one of those terms that is being kind of abused out of all meaning. But there there is perhaps a case to be made for it here, although I'm not the person to make it on a number of levels. And I th- I do think it is... Yeah, I mean, I I find that str- that weird support group thing, as I've already kind of slightly alluded to, very odd on a number of levels, uh, as a way of leaving some of these characters, but not Ryan for some reason. In that it does kind of yeah, you're you're quite right in that it does seem to um to suggest that you know the doctor is some kind of addiction. That again, this is maybe kind of like kind of a toxic relationship. Which again kind of seems to hark back to um, some of the Clara stuff actually. Mm. But again that was a whole arc with like a, an ending for her mm. uh, beyond the Doctor. Whereas this just seems quite content to leave these characters there. To suggest that like you know Ian has had this strange hole in his life for like nearly 60 years now and that's just a fun note to end on. It is interesting as well actually that you um you bring up Yaz's history of depression as well. Yeah. Which I honestly is something I had completely forgotten about mm. until this moment. Mm. And yeah, that's that's obviously partly on me in terms of like forgetting moments from this era, but it's it's also for something that should be seemingly quite important to her character never really referred to again people have made cases that there are oblique references to it at least before can you hear me
1: oh before then yeah Mm. i mean the thing is it's difficult because obviously unlike for example ryan's dyspraxia the depression could just be that she had a depressive episode when she was a teenager that um she has since largely recovered from but i still feel like there'd be a history there that um I suppose I've seen suggestions that it's referenced when she's kind of spiraling with her conspiracy board. I don't quite know if I, to what extent that that is mm. true, but um, I think that it would be. It, it could be more of a. It could certainly be more of a theme, especially with some of the stuff that she's like gone through slash is going through.
3: Mm.
1: It just feels kind of like, if the doctor doesn't also fancy Yaz, then why does she keep Yaz there when she knows that there's an unrequited thing unless Mm. she's just really inconsiderate of her and if the doctor does fancy us then like why aren't they why is there not more kind of you know what i mean
0: (laughs) why not act on that in some on some level
1: the Doctor just behaves as if she didn't know anything about it, even though Yaz has explicitly told her.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it just makes her look kind of callous without any mm. other context for where that relationship's gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, I suppose, it harks back a little bit to the Tenth Doctor's relationship with Martha, I suppose. Mm. Except that there, the callousness was the point.
1: Yeah, and, and... Martha gets out of there. Yeah, uh,
0: and is clearly right to do so. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I th- I think you know there are times where comparing one companion relationship with another is, you know, is not really all that fruitful because they're different characters and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think especially given the kind of uh, we've only touched lightly on this really, but the sort of Davies era nostalgia that seems to be going on in quite a lot of this era, it's almost crying out for it in some ways. Mm-hmm. I'd like to move on, um, especially as. Gosh, we have spent a lot of time on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I'd like. Wait, to... does
1: the thirteenth Doctor even like ladies?
0: Who knows? Does the thirteenth Doctor like anyone?
1: And if not, why not? Because did she stop liking ladies when she became a woman? Because to be a woman, you have to.
0: I mean, she doesn't seem to have like any um...
1: sexual urges. Yeah,
0: or any any kind of, a romantic, of romantic feelings urges. at all. Yeah, which again could be played as a character point, but isn't really.
1: Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that was just by the by.
0: No, no, it's, I think it's, it's by the
1: a, by.
0: Well, no. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think. I mean, I think that's worth mentioning in itself. But I do want to, before we move on, um, touch on a couple of, I think, important recurring characters uh, of this era, who I think would be we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about them a little bit at least. We have touched on one of them actually already, but the one that we have surprisingly barely touched on is The Master, Sasha Dowen's interpretation uh, of The Master. And again, I actually don't have a huge amount to say about this, uh, which is unfortunately kind of the point uh, in itself, because I'm not a huge fan of this particular version of The Master. And I'm specifically not a fan in that I think maybe if we'd somehow, if the show had itself travelled in time, And we had somehow managed to get this as the next iteration that we saw after John Sim. I would maybe think, okay, yeah, it's a similar enough portrayal. But, you know, there's, there's, it's good in itself. Sasha Dowen plays it well. There's kind of, there's maybe not a huge amount to distinguish him. There's a little bit actually in Power of the Doctor, to be fair. I do kind of like there's a kind of childlike aspect to him in that where he's kind of, There's a kind of glee to him and in him kind of trumpeting his own cleverness in a very kind of childish way, which I do quite like. Um, But that's really the only thing I can think of. But the real problem, unfortunately, is the fact that he has, you might say, the misfortune of coming being the sort of next iteration of the master that we see after Missy. And the problem is not just that Michelle Gomez was really, really good, although she was, but that Missy had a whole arc, a whole kind of quasi-redemption arc in which we got to see kind of interesting new sides to the Master and what their relationship to the Doctor could be like. And it's not necessarily that, you know, I think after that point, the master should always be a sort of morally ambivalent character or, like, that they can't be an out-and-out villain after this. It's just that after a portrayal like that, I think going back to them, the master as a sort of scheming, sneering madman, if you like, really feels like a step backwards. and In a way that I think is in keeping with the kind of the nostalgia and the backwards looking of the the era in general really and i mean i mentioned john sim uh, as feeding into his portrayal i think that's a lot of anthony ainley as well and i think consciously so i'm very consciously so in power of the doctor in terms of the tissue compression and all that although it doesn't look really suggestive anymore which is a real shame
1: the master has to be as suggestive as possible that's part of the point of the character you
0: would think yeah
1: Part of the problem with the Master is I think that their character, to some extent, always just involves doing evil and having evil schemes for, like, not necessarily that much reason, but with the complication that, unlike with the Daleks and the Cybermen, it is a sort of humanoid figure with a kind of past and shared past with the Doctor. I think it's difficult to get the balance between the sort of Lol, I'm so evil and random side of the Master and the more complex um relationship that they have with the Doctor. I think there are moments that I like with Sasha Dowen's Master, particularly the moment of him dancing to Respawn by Brony M. But you know, um, I think he was clearly very committed to giving a performance that he cared about. Mm. Um, mm. I just kind of wish. That in the writing there'd been a better balance struck I think between those kind of competing impulses because it seemed to be going I'm not quite sure what the problem was exactly but I feel like it's something to do with a conflict between the like "Ooh, I'm evil and the wanting to have sort of serious plot lines I feel like the the balance was not quite right in a way that I think that it largely was with the Sim and Gomez incarnations of the Master. Hmm. But that's a very personal thing, I suppose. I guess I think I just wish the Master had been deployed more interestingly as well, Hmm. because a lot of the time with the Master, he has been being sort of used in plot lines or episodes that I'm not so keen on for other reasons. And so it's hard to be won around by... The character in that context and I do think that obviously the um the complete ignoring of what happened with the Gomez master is, is kind of a shame
0: yeah yeah I mean you know there's there's in terms of continuity you know I, I think it's become fairly accepted among fans that this must be before Missy in terms of the the master's own okay. um now that's you know that's people doing the work for the show, mm. obviously, which is not not inherently a terrible thing. But I think um, there's only so much credence we can necessarily give it, and I think it's it's kind of it's a to my mind it's a problem that people have to do that, and mm. um, because it means that like that what we have already seen with the master has to be slightly kind of almost retrofitted to be. After this point. Mm. Because otherwise it just doesn't quite work. Mm. But yeah. I mean. And it's not. Again. I I do want to reiterate. It's not that I think going bad after Missy. Is necessarily like. Terrible in itself. Because there's there's an argument to be made. That after how Missy died. Actually going back to being. Just straightforwardly evil. Kind of makes sense. In a sort of well I tried this. And it clearly didn't work way. Mm. But if you're going to play that card, you have to engage with it, mm. and that's clearly not something the the show was willing to do.
2: I completely agree with everything you both said. I mean, it feels like such a disappointment after the kind of more complex, nuanced portrayal that we had uh, into you know from Michelle Gomez with Missy. Like it, honestly, like my kind of. I don't know my kind of take on this again. Like I, d- I don't want to kind of suggest that you can't go back to the master being evil, but you're right. I think there's a way that you can do it effectively, and and honestly, like this is just my personal perspective. But I remember thinking at the time, even before they'd reintroduce the master, like when I saw how the Missy storyline would had been wrapped up, if I'd have taken over, I and mean, obviously that's never going to happen. But if I'd have taken over who at this knows? point, <laughs> um, I, I I wouldn't have gone back to the character at all. Um, I, I I wouldn't have had any interest in going back to the character because I think what what had been done with the character was so interesting and had been done very well. I, I just don't really have any interest in it because I'm I'm more I'm more concerned with creating new kind of compelling villains who are interesting rather than going back to the old villains again and again. And and I think, you know, again, that was a good impulse that they had in series 11 to get away from that, and then they completely backtrack, and series 12 is filled with returning villains. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've always found it less interesting when we have kind of Cybermen, Daleks you know, a kind of a very straightforward evil version of The Master. I think it's much more interesting to come up with with kind of new stuff and new ideas, but that's just me.
1: My final thought on The Master, which kind of goes for, like, all of the new series, not not necessarily just the Chibnalli or I think it's more pronounced in there, which I think if you're going to keep, like, queer-coding The Master, which I think you should because it's a lot of fun, but I also think that you have a duty to have, like, flamboyant, Queer, maybe promiscuous characters that are on the side of justice. Hmm. I guess they had Captain Jack, but well, that's its own set of problems.
0: Yeah, that is its own set of problems, unfortunately, uh, which I suspect we won't really be dwelling on here. No. But yeah, yeah, I th- I, th- I do think that is very true, but um it is something that is I think particularly lacking uh in this era. And then the final sort of recurring character that I think is worth talking about, and uh, the one that we have kind of alluded to a little already, although actually not hugely, uh, is the Fugitive Doctor. Joe Martin's Doctor. Mm. And, um, yeah, well, since you woo, would you like to...
1: Ask not for who the woo-woos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I never do.
1: It woos for Joe Martin's Doctor. I really like Joe Martin. I think that she gives a really good performance both as like the sort of human pretend version mm-hmm. of um, the Fugitive Doctor and as the Fugitive Doctor herself. I like seeing her in other episodes than the than Fugitive the Jadoon because I like her. I think she's really charismatic, she's got a great costume. She shows up and I'm excited. But I don't think she is particularly well used outside of that. Like she just sort of shows up to impart some knowledge or as a hologram and then leaves which is a bit rubbish. I also feel a bit conflicted about how I feel like in a way she was used to give some diversity but in a way that was quite not necessarily superficial, but that was it it feels weird to introduce the first like black regeneration of the doctor in a way that is subordinate to the story of a white doctor. Mm. What I'm hoping basically is that the doctor at some point in the future just regenerates into Joe Martin again because mm. I like her. Um because we've seen with David Tennant that this is a thing that can be done. Mm. But yeah, I ju- it, it feels a bit... Because I saw, I saw like a, a, a tweet around the time of Fugitive the Jadoon which said, like, the, the new Doctor is black, this is not a drill. And I was like, but it kind of is a drill, right? Like, because it's still Jodie Whittaker for the rest of her run and Joe Martin doesn't get to be the next Doctor.
3: Hmm.
1: And I just feel unsatisfied about the whole about the way that her character was used, even though I think Fugitive of the Jaduna is overall a pretty cracking episode, and I think she's very doctory.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm I'm go slightly further than that. I, I think we were, we've all been a bit shortchanged mm. by the way that Joe Martin's Doctor was used. Because we are now in a position, and this is kind of what I was afraid of when she first appeared, to be honest. We are now in a position where the first Black Doctor is a footnote. Like, she's not, she doesn't get the space to be her own iteration, really. I think she does really, really well with the space she does get, don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. But, like, she's an incarnation of the Doctor in the same way John Hurt is an incarnation of the Doctor. In the same way that like only slightly more than Richard E. Grant is an incarnation of the Doctor. And I I I feel I feel, I mean I feel quite sorry for Joe Martin, much as she seems to really revel in getting to be the Doctor. Like, I don't just mean within the show, I mean in terms of like her interactions with fans and everything. I feel kind of bad for her. I also feel quite bad now for Shuti Gatwa. Who doesn't get the the plot that by rights should be his mm. as kind of the first proper Black Doctor.
1: To be fair, I've seen it framed as, like, the first Black Doctor to lead the series, which I think makes sense to give, like... Um, yeah. In the same way that Martha is the first, like, Black companion to lead the series, even though Mickey had sort of on and off been a bit of a yeah. recurring character. I still think that it is a bit odd and... A bit difficult because because it is like a sort of an exciting first in the way that the first female doctor is mm. and for it to be awkwardly split between two people is a yeah. bit unfortunate
0: yeah no absolutely um jacob what do you what do you think of um, all this
2: i mean again i i hate to i hate to sound like a broken record but i i do agree with everything that you've said like she's very charismatic i actually when i when we were preparing for this i did rewatch futures of the jadeun and was kind of struck again by how good i think she is and i just it it is it's very frustrating that she doesn't get a proper screen time she doesn't get developed like i think she I, I, I my frustration is that i again it's this kind of superficiality of the diversity of this era if you're going to have a black female doctor make them the actual doctor i think rather than kind of you know inserting them in in these kind of this brief these brief kind of cameos like i would have liked to have seen her actually in the role because i think she you you're right she does a good job with what she has i think there is even in the brief scenes we do see of her i think there is it feels like there's a complexity to her character that never gets properly unraveled. But uh, yeah, I do like kind of the way she's introduced in Fugitive of the Juzoon. Uh I did kind of have reservations about, I was kind of worried about how they would explain it. And I, I don't really like how they've explained it. But, uh, you know, that initial kind of mystery of who she was, I think, is good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember speculation when she was first introduced that. This was, in fact, the fourteenth Doctor, Yeah. Mm. and we were going to get to see her, and we were going to get to kind of spend a little bit of time with her before the proper regeneration. And like, how cool would that have been?
3: Mm. Mm.
0: Some of my issue here, as well, comes with the fact that you have this this previously unknown version of the Doctor, which is that's kind of an interesting premise on itself. What might they be getting up to? What what kind of adventures might they have had? Mm. Now, after Fugitive of the Jadun, we see her three more times. Once as a basically telling the 13th Doctor what's what in The Timeless Children. Once as a hologram in Power of the Doctor. And then we get a flashback to her in Somewhere in Flux. Is it in Once Upon Time?
2: Uh, it yes. could be, uh, I think yes. it is,
0: yeah. I. I'm not great at remembering exactly what happened in each flux episode, and um, which is slightly the point in some ways, so I'm not too I'm not necessarily all out know, too much against it, but mm. So that's really the only time we get to see her what she was like. And she's a time cop. Which is one of the least interesting things I can think of to do with the Doctor, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. There was so much squandered potential is really the like the the theme of this of this episode i i think and i'm almost tempted to say no one embodies it better than than joe martin as the doctor because she was so good and she got to do so little and i the one thing i will say is that i think she is she may be one of the few people in the world who is going to be better served by big Finish than mm. by the show mm. itself mm. Uh, and by other kind of fan material because she's she's in for instance she's in Time Fracture the interactive show mm. uh, and she's there as like a full proper incarnation of the Doctor as she should be mm. and so I, I can't help but feel that that is going to be she's going to end up being better served by that kind of thing than she was by the show itself which is, which is a real shame
1: unless they get her back
0: Unless they get her back, which is always a possibility and would be amazing, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I mean we can certainly hold out hope for that. So I think after all that, um, we have we have talked quite a bit at this point, uh, and we have more to say, but that will have to wait for another time because it turns out there's quite a lot to say about the last few years of Doctor Who, who knew, so to speak. And um, so I hope you can join us next time. We will be giving our top three and bottom three episodes of the era. And we will be talking a little bit, speculating a little bit about what we think the legacy of this era might be. So I hope you can join us again for that. Until then, I've been
2: Kieran.
1: I've been Bramwell.
2: I've been Jacob. And Thank
0: you very much for listening. Goodbye.
1: Bye.